This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading medical research schools. How will advances in artificial intelligence transform medical research and medical care? To find out, we invite you to read a special supplement to Science Magazine prepared by Icon Mount Sinai in partnership with Science. Just visit our website at science.org and search for Frontiers of Medical Research Artificial Intelligence. On May 1st and May 2nd, ICON, Mount Sinai, and the New York Academy of Sciences will be convening a major symposium in New York City on the new wave of AI in healthcare. For more information and to register, please visit events.nyas.org slash AI health. That's events.nyas.org slash AI health. The ICON School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the NOMIS and Science Young Explorer Award. Are you doing excellent research that deserves recognition? The NOMIS and Science Young Explorer Award recognizes bold young researchers who ask fundamental questions at the intersection of the life and social sciences. Researchers who take risks to address relevant and exciting questions with creative approaches, regardless of the research outcome. Submissions are due May 15th. Visit science.org slash NOMIS, that's N-O-M-I-S, to apply today. Welcome to the Science Podcast for August 11th, 2017. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, Lizzie Wade talks with us about the arrival of humans in America. Could they possibly have come down the coast in boats? And David Grimm gives us this week's hits from our online news site. Now we have David Grimm, editor for our daily news site. He's here to talk about some recent online stories. Okay, Dave, the first story we're going to talk about is trees doing it for themselves. (laughs) The Amazon rainforest gets rained on a lot earlier than one would expect. About two to three months before seasonal winds bring in moisture-heavy air from the ocean, the rains have been drenching the forest. Now scientists think they know why. The trees are making their own rain. I know. Oh, gosh. How could trees make their own weather? Trees engage in a process called transpiration, where plants actually release water vapor from small pores on their underside. And then this water evaporates, it goes up into the atmosphere. So it's been, there's been this idea that maybe, that you know, obviously you've got tons of trees in the Amazon. They're releasing tons of water. Maybe they it's are misty. seeding. It's misty. Maybe the, the trees are seeding their own clouds, and maybe that's what's causing these rains to come so early. But there hasn't really been conclusive proof for that. And the proof now comes in the form of satellite data. What can we see from space that might help figure this out? Well, so this is thanks to NASA's Aura satellite, which is a space spacecraft dedicated to studying the chemistry of Earth's atmosphere. And what's really interesting is that when water comes from the sea, it's actually lighter than the water that comes from plants because deuterium, which is this heavy isotope of hydrogen, deuterium-laced water is so is heavy enough that it stays in the sea and the lighter water 
gets up into the atmosphere, and that's what rains on the Amazon. But when transpiration happens from plants, none of that happens. So the plants are actually releasing light and heavy water uh, up into the atmosphere. And so researchers can tell the difference. And that's what they were able to read from outer space when there was lighter water and heavier water involved in the rain? Exactly. And they found that when they saw the heavier water, that was really timed to when the plants would be transpiring, when these early rains were coming. And that all ties it back to the plants, to the trees. And this then is tree weather. This is trees making their own rain. And that's actually really interesting and really important because we worry about things like deforestation of the Amazon, not just because it's bad for trees, but this actually could have this snowball effect where you remove trees, you're going to have less water, less rain. Less rain means fewer trees, and you could really have a big problem. So, so the researchers are saying this isn't just important for showing how important plants are for creating their own weather, but how important it is to keep these plants there and these trees there in the first place. Next, we have a story on cuddly puppies. Don't you just want to squeeze them and love them and name them all, George? <laughs> it turns out that babying puppies is not the best idea when it comes to making working dogs. Dave, how can my love for little dogs be wrong? It can't be wrong, and especially <laughs> if you watch these videos that you guys nicely put together for this story. It's hard not to say aw because we're seeing a lot of puppies but it turns out some of these puppies are much more destined to become guide dogs than others because of the way their mothers are treating them. How how could love for a puppy differ <laughs> from one mother dog to the other? How could love for a puppy be wrong? Well, <laughs> it turns out that sometimes mothers make it intentionally or unintentionally, probably unintentionally, more difficult for their puppies to nurse. One thing mothers can do is they can stand while nursing, which actually makes the puppies have to sort of struggle a little bit more to find the nipple. If the mothers are laying down, it's a lot easier for the puppies. Now, when some of these dogs try to become guide dogs, they're going to have to overcome a lot of obstacles to be trained well. And in fact, when people train guide dogs, only about 70% of them typically make it. And what did they see when they looked at, you know, puppies, how they were raised by their mothers, and then whether or not they succeeded in guide dog school? So right. So the puppies that had to deal with mothers who were standing while nursing had to deal with mothers that were less smothering, maybe not licking them and coddling them as much, actually did better as guide dogs because they had to overcome these obstacles. And also they weren't so used to being coddled. They sort of had to kind of do things on their own versus the puppies that were a lot more coddled and had a lot more easier time nursing. In fact, dogs whose mothers spent the most time licking and grooming them as puppies were almost three times less likely to succeed in a guide dog training program. Now, this wasn't randomized, so maybe mama dog was licking them because she felt bad for what's going to happen later. Maybe, maybe. <laughs> but more importantly, Dave, what about cats? What about cats, Sarah? The <laughs> eternal question. There are very few guide cats. In fact, I've never seen one. But there are therapy cats, and there are cats that serve as stress relievers, as PTSD relievers, even for people who have Alzheimer's and things like that. So it's possible that a similar study could be done with cats to see whether how they are raised determines how good they are as service animals. Dave, 
Can I just say for probably the thousandth time that I love living in the era of ancient DNA. We are finding <laughs> so much out about history, the human race, our history especially, as we get deeper and deeper into this technology. The next story is on ancient DNA and ancient Greece and the ancestors of the ancient Greeks, the... Mycenaeans. Well, <laughs> we don't know it. that. I mean, so so the question here is, if you go back to the days of Homer, Greeks were always idealizing their connection to their fabled Mycenaean ancestors. And these are people that were immortalized. Agamemnon. Agamemnon. Odysseus, other heroes that interacted with the Greek gods. Clearly, we know that's not the case because the fabled Mycenaeans were just made up. But there were actually real Mycenaeans that were that the fabled Mycenaeans were based on. And this new study asked the question, well, were the ancient Greeks related to these guys? We're going to talk about living Greeks, ancient Greeks, and Mycenaeans here. So let's talk first about the old times. When were the Mycenaeans around, the ones that we know existed, and where do we get samples of their DNA? So the Mycenaeans lived uh, around Greece, mainland Greece, and the Aegean from around 1600 BCE to 1200 BCE. Uh, then they vanished. They seem to have vanished. And these samples actually, so the ancient DNA comes from the teeth of 19 people, including four Mycenaeans, also 10 Minoans, which is another very famous culture. I think uh, fabled King Minos, that was a fictitious Minoan, but the Minoans, like the Mycenaeans, also had a real life cultural analog, um, and also a bunch of DNA from uh, modern Greeks as well. What these DNA comparisons seem to suggest is that the ancient Greeks were related to the Mycenaeans and, astonishingly, the living people as a consequence of that. That's right. And really also interesting as well is that the Mycenaeans and the Minoans were actually highly related to each other. And there was some thinking that maybe these were two very separate cultures. In fact, some thought the Minoans were more related to the ancient Egyptians because some of their pottery seemed to have writing that was a bit like hieroglyphics. But this new study shows that no, the Mycenaeans and Minoans were actually very similar. But also, again, that the um, the today's Greeks and the ancient Greeks seem to have uh, descended from both of these cultures, which is pretty cool. One other takeaway that is exciting about this result is that these samples are from a hot, dry climate. So there's always kind of been a question about whether ancient DNA can be retrieved from many different parts of the world because the climate has such a big effect on the sample. So this means, to me anyway, that more research of this type can be done in this region. What historical slash possibly mythical people might we learn about next? Yeah, that's great because it really opens up looking at the DNA of a lot of the ancient people in this region, including the mysterious Hittites, which have some biblical connections. Uh, so we may be seeing a lot more of this stuff in the future. Okay. What else is on the site this week, Dave? Well, Sarah, we've got a story about how Google is making music with artificial intelligence. Also a story about how DNA, speaking of ancient DNA, ancient DNA from ancient turkeys. Not in, the people from not Turkey. Not the people from Turkey, but actual gobble-gobble turkeys from the American Southwest <laughs> may shed light on where a vanished civilization has gone. For Science Insider, our policy blog, we've got a story about why a revolutionary malaria test has an unexpected downside. Also, a CRISPR battle in Europe that has taken a wild twist. So be sure to check out all these stories on the site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, sir. David Grimm is the editor for our online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. 
the long-standing hypothesis on the peopling of the Americas, how humans first got here, has been that hunters followed mammoths and other big game from Siberia across the Bering Land Bridge and through a gap in the glaciers down through Canada, arriving in the continental U.S. about 13,500 years ago. And then those people slowly walked down to the southern tip of South America over the course of a few thousand years. But lately, archaeological evidence is making a bit of a mess out of this terrestrial journey. Lizzie Wade is here to take us through a more watery route. Welcome, Lizzie. Hi, Tara. Walking through the ice corridor, is that meant to coincide with when there were glaciers, but they're not blocking blocking access to uh, the U.S. from Canada? And then what do we have? What evidence do we have to show that people made it to the continental U.S. around this time? The sort of longstanding vision of how this happened was that these hunters came down through this gap in the glaciers, as you said, around 13,000 500, maybe a little earlier. And that's based on geological evidence of what glaciers melted when. And, you know, kind of around that time, there seems to be this opening that connects Alaska to the continental U.S. um, that people could have gotten in through. The evidence for these supposedly first people were these Clovis points, which are these really beautiful spear points that have these grooves on the bottom that are really distinctive when you find them in an archaeological site. And those were considered to be the sign of the earliest people to arrive in the Americas. That all seemed really neat. The ice recorder opened just before the Clovis points started showing up in the U.S., like perfect timeline, great. And then suddenly in the 90s, the site at the almost bottom of Chile called Monte Verde turned out to be 14,500 years old is a thousand years before Clovis points show up in the U.S. And what did they find? What did they find in Chile? They found stone tools, no Clovis points. Right. So the people there were not hunters, like they didn't find connection with the continental U.S. So it didn't seem like the Clovis people walked down there. Sort of simple stone tools, a whole like mountain of seaweed, even though Monteverde wasn't that close to the coast at the time. People were still bringing coastal resources in. Lots of burned animal bones and hearts and all these very well-dated, very distinctive signs of a human presence a thousand years before anyone thought that people had even made it as far as Washington. And all of a sudden, they were all the way down in Chile. So that kind of threw this Clovis first model on its head. Right. And and the idea is that the people then traveled down the coast. So they didn't walk. They took a boat. Is it possible that maybe the Clovis evidence is strong, but that Maybe people just came through this ice corridor earlier, or maybe they just walked faster than we thought they could. So the whole thing kind of hinges on what date the ice recorder opened. When exactly did these glaciers melt? Because we know best date so far is it started melting around 16,000 years ago, between 16,000 and 15,000 years ago. But it seems like it didn't open entirely and become, you know, welcoming to these big megafauna. It was a grassland around 13,000 years ago, well after Monte Verde. But the coast of southwestern Alaska and British Columbia, which is lots of little islands, 
the glaciers retreated from there much earlier. So like before 16,000 years ago, that was productive land. There were bears and caribou living there. You can sort of see sea level change and geological data. And whenever the ice free corridor ended up being available, the coast was always earlier. Mm -hmm. So the idea is that if people got out of this land bridge, which is called now Beringia, which is Siberia, Alaska, and the part of the land that's now under the Bering Strait, if they got out around 16,000 years ago, there were still glaciers filling up this ice-free corridor, most of it. So, you know, how did they get around them? And the answer increasingly looks like it's boats down the coast. And that also would explain how people could move so fast. Right. <laughs> down to Chile, like you can walk, you can go on boats a lot faster than you can walk. There's more than one site that is starting to support this idea. Where are they looking to try to pin down coastal sites that maybe as these people came down in boats, they, they stopped for a bit? My story sort of focuses on three places in North America. One is the shore of British Columbia, one of the first environments that people would have entered through. As the glaciers melted, water went into the ocean, right? So the sea level rose an enormous amount. But in British Columbia, because, you know, it's kind of geologically quirky up there, the land had been kind of weighed down by the weight of all that ice. And as they melted, the land in some places actually popped up. And so in British Columbia, there are still places where you can find tools. And even they found footprints that are 13,000 years old on a beach, which is unreal. I mean... If you think of like what could survive on a beach, it's like almost nothing, you know. And so um, another site that I went to is called Isla Cedros, Cedros Island. It's off of the Baja Peninsula. And those have some very, very early coastal sites, not quite as early as the stuff in British Columbia, which would make sense. That island is quite rocky and mountainous. So, you know, a lot of it survived the sea level rise. That site has lots of very characteristic coastal tools that you see in a lot of other places up and down the coast. People seem to be making their living almost exclusively from the ocean. And then a really interesting project that is just starting up now is looking off the coast of Oregon and off the coast of California because the coast that any travelers would have come down is now underwater. So they're starting to map kind of where rivers would be under the seafloor to see, you know, where might people have settled in and stayed a while? Where might we be able to find evidence of their presence? And they've just started to take cores of those landscapes this summer to see what's left down there and if they have any hope of ever finding any artifacts. Right. What would be a very decisive find? What would clinch one over the other? That's been sort of the problem with the coastal route for like 20 years, that there's lots of circumstantial evidence to the point where I think most archaeologists would say, like, this is probably how it happened. We're fairly certain. There's no other way. But there's no direct evidence. There's no really old sites on the coast that have been discovered yet. So basically, you know, Monte Verde was really a turning point when that Clovis first model collapsed. It's not going to be one site that changes the game again. What this is going to take is well-dated sequence of sites where you see the oldest stuff in Alaska and Canada moving down the coast, potentially with similar cultural practices, similar tools, which they are seeing. But it's going to take a lot of sites and they're going to have to be really well dated and in a very strong sequential order. I don't think the ice recorder has been entirely counted out. It doesn't seem to be a particularly likely way that people first came to the Americas, but people were definitely in there. And the current vision of it is that maybe people came down the coast 
made it to Oregon, Washington, maybe California before the ice-free corridor opened. But as they expanded into the interior, you know, presumably following rivers, they could have gone back up into the ice-free corridor. So, you know, the ice-free corridor remains a really interesting region that we have a lot to learn about. And it's possible that it wasn't the first route into the Americas, but that it played a really important role as people spread out and decided where they wanted to stick around. Okay. Thanks so much, Lizzie. Thank you. Lizzie Wade is a contributing correspondent based in Mexico City. She writes about the peopling of the Americas, this week in science. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and many other apps, or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us.